White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. International Culinary Center in New York, and today I'm broadcasting from the Planters Inn in Charleston, South Carolina, at the Charleston Food and Wine Festival. And I have one of the great chefs of Charleston with me, Michelle Weaver from the Charleston Place um, Hotel. And uh, Michelle is a native of Alabama, I am a real southerner. Um, and she has taken uh, this place by storm. The chairman of the Food and Wine Festival, my good friend Rick Giroux, told me you're one of his favorite chefs in the world. Oh, so um, I just want to know all about your story. And so tell me, so, so you're a native of the South? Absolutely. I've lived, I've had a great time living in the South. I spent two cold winters in Vermont. Oh, really? And the oh, rest of the school. time, <laughs> yes. And the rest of the time, I've had the privilege of living in. Uh, New Orleans and Nashville and now Charleston, so great so, cities. So tell me, Michelle, about your background. Where, what kind of town did you grow up in? Uh, or city? It was well. It's a small little town. It was about fifty-five thousand people. Um, we were the driest, uh, largest dry city in the nation up until like the mid '80s. So we didn't have a lot of options as far as restaurants because you couldn't serve wine or beer or anything like that. So. Um, after that happened, though, it exploded. So now we have lots of restaurants when I go home to see my family. So they rescinded, though. Yeah. yeah. And they passed the law and got, finally got uh, alcohol. <laughs> so that made restaurants want to come in. When did that happen? It was probably 84, 85. Oh, okay. So. We'll get into that a little bit later. <laughs> okay, so uh, are, is your family a multi-generational family? Uh, well, in that area, yeah. from North Alabama. From so, North Alabama. Yeah, so most people. The name of the town? It's called Decatur, Alabama. Oh, Decatur. Okay. You might know Decatur, Alabama because of uh, Whit's Barbecue, or not Whit's Barbecue, Big Bob Gets on the Barbecue with um, the white sauce, which oh. is a North Alabama barbecue oh, white sauce. White sauce is that a vinegar? It is vinegar, vinegar mayonnaise base, which people that's our little secret in uh, oh, that North Alabama. Like well, it kind of is. It's like apple cider vinegar and a little cayenne and black pepper and mayonnaise and vinegar, and then you add it to chicken. So it's what we put barbecue sauce for chicken. Oh, for chicken! That yeah. sounds great. So it's called uh, I love Alabama white sauce. Kinda. I do too. So, uh, so tell me when, uh, like, what are your earliest memories of food? 
probably cooking with my mom, you know, um, pulling up a chair with her at the stove, a cast iron skillet and whatever's fresh from her garden. That's the way we grew up. So. You know, I am just so jealous. Uh, so many of the chefs I've talked to down here and just people, they really have a connection to the land. It seems most people do have gardening. You know, up north, maybe because we have such a short season and we live in right. such big cities, uh, we've got, become so uh, disconnected from the land. So tell me about the garden and tell me what kind of foods your mom Well, for, for us, it was a necessity. That's how she fed us. <laughs> we didn't grow up, um, you know, without a lot. Mm-hmm. We never knew we were poor, but we always had food, mostly vegetables or um little hoe cakes or some kind of seasoning. It's like a little fried corn cornbread. Oh, cornbread. You know, you do it in a cast iron skillet. Remember, like you, you do a pancake. I'm sorry. Of, you know, <laughs> thank you for allowing me, you know, in your city here. But uh, you know, a lot of a lot of our listeners out there all over the world. So yeah. we can't use the shorthand. I'm gonna be asking you what these names oh, good, are. Good, good, good. But my mother still grows a garden every year. Mm-hmm. Um, she preserves, she cans, you know, just like she was going to starve to death over the winter if they didn't put up the vegetables, you know, and then mm-hmm. distribute it throughout the family, you know. So now, you know, canning is, I thought, becoming a lost art because people freeze it really and things it like It really that. is. What kind, of, what kind of things would she can? What kind of things do you like eating out of a can? Oh, gosh, she cans everything. I mean, from beans to okra. This means putting them in okra. a mason jar. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And she pickles things. She uh, makes preserves and jams and... You know, as things come into season, she won't leave her little farm, her little area, because things are coming in. She's like, I can't go anywhere. The garden's coming in. Right. You got to You know, you so she's got to put, that's what she said, put it up. You got to put up everything. So mm-hmm. um, she puts tomatoes up so she can make tomato sauces during mm-hmm. the, you know, the winters. Mm-hmm. But she cans everything. Well, I'll tell you what we're doing right now. That I don't think you're doing that. <laughs> because I put up a lot of things, too. I had a Czechoslovakian grandmother who taught me a lot. We're making maple syrup. Oh. We're tapping our trees. So, okay. Very nice. I don't Very wanna... nice. So, um, so, what were some of the dishes your mom made that you just loved? Well, my favorite of hers for the put-up stuff was her homemade vegetable soup. Because everything was fresh from the garden at its peak flavor, and then she canned it. And so, in the winter, you'd make a big pan of cornbread and pull out some vegetable soup. She would send us this when I was in culinary school in Vermont or... My brother off at school, whatever. How did she make it? I don't know. I mean, she just, she never even used stock. It was just vegetables cooked in all this water with herbs and different things. And it just tastes like vegetables. Green beans taste like green beans. The tomatoes taste like tomatoes. And they're peak season. So Ooh. it was just very simple, but it was perfect. I want the recipe. You're going to ask her. I don't think she wouldn't give me a recipe. She doesn't really use oh, recipes. She doesn't She's use like, recipes. No. So she just put them. So she was very intuitive. Was that passed along? Probably one of the best southern cooks I've. You know, she grew up from her grandmother um, learning how to do these things, and mm. her sisters can't cook a lick. <laughs> but she inherited really? that gene. No, and so that, did you. No. Are you lucky? Well, she was one inspired me, yeah. <laughs> but so, that's how I learned to cook, was that cast iron skillet. So what, at what age did you start thinking about being a chef? You know, it, it wasn't until probably my mid to late 20s. I'd been in the food industry for a long time, and what even you going doing? through, you know, working in the front of the house, uh-huh. waiting tables, bartending. I was you know, putting myself through college and mm-hmm. different things. Came home, went back, kept going back to the business. Mm-hmm. And uh, a friend of mine went to culinary school and came back and opened a restaurant. And I was like, "Why haven't I done this? Why aren't I doing this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what I really want to do." Mm-hmm. 
So, what uh, age was that when you decided to do that? Um, I was probably 26, 27. Mm. Was I got it kind a late of scary start. To, to it, go true, back to school? Absolutely, but exciting at the same time. Mm. You know, I put everything I could in my little red Cavalier, <laughs> headed to Vermont. It's a two day trip there. How'd you, how'd you choose the school? Because it was so far away. It was. And, uh, you know, you had this great little quaint picture of Vermont in your mind, you know, which was truly that until, you know, winter came. <laughs> yes, right. Well, they do have like, snow-covered pictures, too, you know. The steeple is the only yeah. thing you see under the snow, out of the yeah. snow. Well, my thinking was, though, you know, I felt like I was getting a late start on this. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as I was, you know, doing catering and working in the front of the house, I knew what the business was, mm-hmm. but it this age I was like starting over again and so I really wanted to um, be in a place where I could get the biggest bang for my buck you know mm-hmm. if I'm going to have to invest again because right. company or schools are yeah. very expensive right and so I looked at Vermont at seven to one you know teachers yeah. it's all hands-on and I was like you know I don't want to be in a demo class I don't want to be in an auditorium talking about food mm-hmm. I want my hands in the food mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought this was really the best place I could be. Mm. And uh, so I packed up, and, you know, the first 12 hours, you know, I'm driving. I'm like, the window's down, the radio's cranked. I'm like, woo, this is going to be great, you know. And then the second leg of the trip, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm 24 hours away from anybody that I know and love. I'm gonna, <laughs> what am I doing? And then I get there, and I was like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Oh. So it, was, it, it worked out great. Wow. So tell, me, tell me, what's the difference between a great home cook and a professional chef? Well, I mean, think of it this way. I mean, have you ever tried cooking for 30 people all ordering something different out of your house? No. That's, That's it. it. Yeah. Um, so it's that kind of thinking, you know, I was like, ah, I don't want to do that. It was one thing to make a big pan of lasagna and a salad. Right. Well, I don't want salad. I want, you know... Something else. I want soup. I want, you know, steak. I want da-da-da-da-da-da. So what's the key to doing all that? Having a great team to back you up, you know. Yeah. yeah. But what if you only got two or three in the kitchen? Well, I've come through kitchens. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm in a hotel kitchen now, but, you know, I came through small, small independent kitchen. restaurants. You know, there was only two of us in there. It's usually the chef, you, you and maybe a dishwasher. You've arms, right? <laughs> all in front and back yeah. and, uh, and all that, You know. Like you get in that groove of working together and reading each other's minds and, you know, just keep so it So what flowing. was your dream in culinary school? What were you dreaming about? Is this your, you know, coming back to the South? And yeah. I, you know, it's, it's hard to explain. It's like I feel blessed every day that I actually get to do what I love to do, mm-hmm. to make a living. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I didn't even occur to me somehow to my mid-20s that, holy moly, I could really do this mm-hmm. to as a job? Are you kidding me? You know, I don't know why it never dawned on me. You know, my folks just came up working, hardworking people. Mm. Uh, my mother was do? a well, my mom was a nurse, or still is a nurse. Uh, my dad's retired now, and he, you know, he owned his own businesses and different things, and um, he's semi-retired now. Huh. Uh, but they, you know, work for other people or, uh-huh. you know, try to be a small business. And, do you have siblings? Oh yes. Um, what if any of them have the cooking? Not professionally, but everybody loves food and everybody loves to cook. You know, I have the brother youngest from me. He's the grill master. He can cook the best brisket I've ever had in my life. He'll cook it for 18, 20 hours, get up in the middle of the night to baby it, 
you know, he only does it like twice a year because it's such a pain for him. Mm. But it's absolutely delicious. Mm. And then my other brother is, he's the wine enthusiast. He loves wine. Always got to have one of those. In the Absolutely. Family. So he brings the wine, picks the wines for whatever dinners we're going to do. And then my sister, who's an artist in uh, Baton Rouge, uh, she's a vegetarian, um, and she loves food. And she, you know, in her travels to you know Indonesia or different places, she'll bring back all these great flavors. So she's really open to um, the global. They, they show you any difference in the kitchen, like when you're. Cooking? Did they say okay? We defer to you. You do. We'll do it your way. Well, it's automatically. Or you're cooking, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, unless it's the brisket. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, um, so tell me. So, you know, when you were when you were young, did you consider anything? Well, obviously, you said you came to this slate. So, what did you think you were going to be? And what were some of your other passions? Well. I was going to be a marketing director of some sort, I think. You know, that's what I went to school for. Um, but I kept coming back to food and beverage. I loved it so much. Mm. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm not really wanting to do this. And mm. I'd start back in another restaurant and just have the best time. So you went from Decatur to Vermont? No, I went from Decatur to, uh, well, oh, to yeah. Alabama. Okay. And then I came you back University home. University of Alabama? Yes. And then I came back home Did you after that. Did you use the Island Grill at all? Where? At the Highland Grill. Oh, Frank Stan, of yeah, course. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Isn't the University Frank, of Alabama there? Well, he, he's in Birmingham. Oh. We're a couple, in Tuscaloosa at the oh. university. But, oh. you know, I grew up knowing who Frank was. Well, Frank was one of my idols, you know, uh-huh. when he opened the Highlands Bar and Grill. And uh-huh. still is, you know. Yeah. It's always a treat to see him when he comes into town for the festival. Yeah. But, you know, that was the, for me, the epitome of fine dining growing up, you know, was... It is. It still is. is. It you know, I, I, I adore him and I adore his food. And He's an incredible inspiration to absolutely. lots of the uh, younger chefs absolutely. coming up. I guess I had a big dinner here for him. That's tonight. Oh, it's Saturday. Tonight. Yes, oh, are yes. you um, cooking? No, no, not unfortunately. No. I couldn't be there. But okay. it's going to be a phenomenal dinner. Mm. Phenomenal. I wish I could go. Um, so, so tell me, uh, when, when you were... Can see, you know, you had a sense of uh, becoming a chef, and when now you're actually a chef, what's the difference of being really being professional as opposed to being a good home cook? Well, it's organized chaos. I mean, you know, a hundred plus people coming to see you a night that you've got to organize an entire menu for because you don't know what they're going to order. So you have to have this team, and it has to be, you know, clockwork. It has to be um, passion in that food. Every single plate has got to be lift a spirit, make somebody smile, make them have an experience. Um, how hard is it to get your will through other people? Because you've got how big is your team? Charles, it depends on what night, you know. So um, usually have at least four line cooks, you know, and myself. Um, so how do you get somebody else to make your food? You have to work with them. You have to teach them. You know, just can't hand them a recipe because I don't think the I don't like recipes because it doesn't impart that uh, making people taste it, mm. feeling it. You mm. know, the texture, the flavor, the smell. You know, the happiness in that dish. So you really have to work every single dish that we change. I have everybody work that dish with me. So I show them how I want it done, and then I make them cook it for me. 
right back. So I want you to taste what I'm cooking, and now I want you to turn around after I show you this dish mm. and cook it back for me. And so let's when, taste it again. So when you hire somebody, what are you looking for? A, it has to be from the heart, passion. You know, there's a, a lot of easier ways to make a living than what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and being part of a hotel, we're open 365 days of the year. Holidays are some of the biggest days of the year. Mm. We work long, hard hours. You're going to spend more time with me than you are with your loved ones. Mm-hmm. So we've got to all get along. So no jerks, you know. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but the enthusiasm first. You know, yeah. I can teach you the skills if you've got the desire to learn it. Mm-hmm. I can't teach you desire. You have to bring that to the table. Right. So it has to come from here. Right. So um, actually, we're going to take a little break here. Um, and then we're going to come back and talk about the set. Great. Uh, you're listening to Chef Story, and I'm Dorothy Cam Hamilton. And today we're broadcasting from Charleston, South Carolina, because we're down here for the Charleston Food and Wine Festival. And I have one of the greatest uh, Charleston chefs with me, Michelle Weaver of the Charleston Grill at the Charleston Place Hotel. Um, but you're in charge of all the food at the at the hotel. Aren't no, no, you? thank no? goodness, no. no. Oh, 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 all right. <laughs> Because I was going to say, I've had, I've no, we had have. a nice uh, <laughs> breakfast, a room service breakfast there. I can heartily recommend it. But unfortunately, with this festival, it's very hard to get around and eat, eat around town. We're eating so much. But um, let me ask you something about about the South. Where do you... I, I'm, I'm finding... I'm discovering products that I never discovered before. For example, rice. And I think Alabama is one of the biggest rice producers in the country. Actually, Charleston used to be. Used before, to be. Before the war, that's why Charleston was one of the richest cities at that time. Mm-hmm. It all came from the rice. So mm-hmm. most rice that are that's in the states now actually came from Charleston originally. It's now moved to Arkansas as a big rice state as oh, well Oh, and now. Texas too, I think. Yeah. So what do you see rice as a, as a southern ingredient in your dishes or... How do you how do you view rice? More so since I've moved to Charleston from the coastal uh, aspect of Low Country, mm-hmm. um, it's a real big part of Low Country cuisine. Um, mixing seafood with the rice, you know, um, and obviously grits as well. But um, from let's see, um, the we have these we call them rice grits. What is that? All right. Well, they're one of my favorite people in the world is Glenn Roberts from Anson Mills. Mm-hmm. And he is such an amazing man that he has done all this research. His mind is just crazy scientific. He was a chef at one time, and then he started trying to find all these old seeds and different things that have dis- dissipated and disappeared. And he finds these patches or talks to these people and finds all these great little jewels of the South here, you know. 
Um, and so we started growing uh, the Carolina Gold Rice again. It was a little heirloom. Started bringing it back. And we, he calls them rice grits. They're the broken pieces because they're a soft rice. Uh, once they get milled, they uh, break into these little pieces. Uh-huh. And so they look like grits, but they're rice. I see. But he, uh, he's also found like this patch of sea island red peas, you know, uh-huh. that everybody thought what are, was what's gone. It's just like, it looks like a little fill pea. Uh-huh. It's a little brown pea. They're delicious. But uh, he finds all these great treats. And so for us as chefs, I mean, these guys and their passion is driving to find all these little lost jewels mm-hmm. and bringing them back and growing them and harvesting them because it's not easy. Mm-hmm. You know, the mast milled rice is a lot easier than getting in a truck by yourself, you know, in oh, sure, waders. You can too. You, it's, yeah. it's, it's a lot of work. So tell me, how is, it, how is the raw products and food products different in Alabama from Charleston? Well, it depends on where you go. I mean, there's a lot of great farms um, coming up all over the South and probably everywhere now. Everybody's moving to that farm to table or, um, you know, I always get perturbed with that phrase because, you know, any chef worth their weight has always been, you know, doing that. You know, you wanted the local, you wanted the fresh. but what has made it great is there are more people <coughs> farming that way now. Um, I think that was a lost art, like we talked about before, about preserving. Um, it just became all manufactured farms. So now you've got these great little farms and whole families. And you know, we have this great Ambrose family that we work with a lot <coughs> that have grown. And, and now they grow things and stagger crops. We can have things are longer. They, are they local? Uh, yes. Right outside of Charleston? Yes. What kind of foods do they make? Uh, right now I'm still getting tomatoes, fresh local tomatoes, little cherry. <coughs> What do you mean you're still getting? Did yes. they have them through the, through the winter? We've had a, we had a two-week span. We, we couldn't get them. And, you know, we had a great mild winter. That has a lot to do with it. First strawberries just showing up this week. Really? You know, it's, it's been awesome. It's March 2nd, folks. Yeah. Here. Um, uh, but there's been a great transition. Like, you know, I moved here 15 and a half years ago. And we had great farms. But most everybody was doing the same thing. And it was like, at a you know, you'd have asparagus for two weeks and that was it. <laughs> You would have collard greens coming out your ears or eggplant, but that's all anyone was growing. So now working with more chefs, more restaurants, uh, more people come to Charleston. We've got more farms and people how does, growing how does that and work? doing are things. These mid-sized farms, and do you some do you of work them are just a farmer and say this is what I would like you to grow? A lot of it is that, and that that part of the education because maybe they've only grown collards all of their life. But they're, they want to make us happy because they, they want to sell their products. Right. But there's only so many collards we can buy at a time. Right. But if you can do this and stagger it where not everybody's got asparagus, you know, the first two weeks of April. Right. You know, we can have it staggered out a little bit and carry us through maybe a month or two. Mm-hmm. Then we can keep buying from you. So it's a, a partnership. Mm-hmm. It truly is a partnership. What about dairy? Do they have any special milk farms here we're starting to get yes. We're we do have a couple small um, farms doing that, and she's doing a great job with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Celeste Albers, beautiful milk, unpasteurized, and, and they do eggs. We've got you know three or four people doing you know local eggs now that can supply most mm-hmm. of the restaurants if you want it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've even got monks you know living here doing uh, oyster mushrooms for us and shiitake mushrooms. Really? Yeah. Do they, how does that work? 
I mean, do they just forage for them, or do they? They cultivate kind of those. Those are cultivated. They're cultivated. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. so. Everybody's in on it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very organic system. Yes, yeah. Um, so, what what about um, you know what the, in Charleston? What is the southern eater looking for? I notice the sugar quotient is quite high. Um, this morning uh, there was a special breakfast at High Cotton. And they had this dish ambrosia there. And it was like, wow, it's like an insulin shot or something. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, that's why these people are so happy in the morning. You know, tell, tell, me, uh, tell me about the, the, the sugar level in the South. Is there, you know, it's much, much higher. They're, well, they're much sweeter yeah. here, aren't they? You it's know, we're a, big fans of sweet ice tea around here. Right, so. right. Where did that come from? Do you know? I, I don't know. I don't know. I know that, you know, I like tea both ways, but I usually have to, if I have a glass of ice, sweet tea, I'm usually pouring about half unsweet, half sweet in there because it's a little too much for me. So, But, but even the cakes. Now, I've had a couple of cakes down here, and they're absolutely uh, delicious. I, or, I think layer cakes are from the south, aren't they? Or, maybe. Or probably from maybe. England, I think, and yeah. came over, and then there were really... But, um, you know, I was just wondering, with the lack of alcohol, you know, <laughs> which there are, you know, a lot right, of dry right. places in in the south, did you think that, that had anything maybe, to do with the, Maybe, maybe. We can't have the booze while I take the sugar. All right. Okay, we're not going down the history. I had the Lee brothers here, and they were all about... You know, history, and you know, and then um, you know, some people know the the whole genetic history of a pea. But um, (laughs) all right, you know what? We're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue with Michelle Weaver. You're listening to Chef's Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton. And today we're in Charleston talking to Michelle Weaver from the Charleston Place Hotel, and she uh, she's the commander of the Charleston Grill there. So, Michelle, I'm going to talk to you about women chefs. Well, I don't know if this is a popular topic that people bring up with you all the time. It is, but, you know, it's just one of those, it's like, you know, you never want to be singled out because you're a woman you want to be singled out because you're a great chef right you know you want to be taken seriously just like the guys are right and sometimes I think people put an emphasis on um, just being a woman chef because there's so few of us right you know but I so why are there so few women chefs you know I can't answer that for everybody I know that um, it's tough balance you know I made the decision a long time ago that you know, I wasn't going to have children. So, you know, I couldn't do what I'm doing right now, I know personally, and have children because I'm so exhausted. You know, 12, 14, 16-hour days, it leaves a 
no time for a child. I, I don't even have a dog because I, I, I feel guilty of leaving a dog at home that long. Really? I mean, <laughs> you know, so, but this is, these kids at the restaurant are my kids. You know, that's the way I look at it. And they are my family, too. And so that's where I put my energy because I would be miserable. I would not be myself um, if I didn't have this. Mm. It, I just believe in it so much, and I believe in uh, giving back to these kids and teaching them if this is what they want to do um, and seeing people smile every night, you know, and it's like instant gratification going through the dining room. But I can't make that decision for everyone um, as far as a woman's concerned. I know some great women chefs that have children and have families, and um, I support them 100%. I just couldn't see myself doing it. Doing it. Did you ever I felt like, like something would be... Yeah. You know... Compromised. It would be, yeah. So, um, did you ever feel a glass ceiling? Did you ever feel like you, you, weren't, you couldn't progress as far as you wanted, or if you wanted your own restaurant, mm. do you think... It would be equally easy for you to get financing for it. Did you ever feel any? Um, you know, challenge? Uh, yes, probably starting out a little bit. You know, you being the only woman at times when you know you start out as a line cook and um, probably having to work three times as hard to get noticed or anything to get ahead. You know, that, that was tough. What about the women that come to your kitchen now? Are there a lot more women coming through the kitchen? Not as many as I would hope, you know. You what know, we percentage get, of your staff? Well, I just we hired some new staff right now, but at one point, you know, I've had um, opportunities where I've had fifty-fifty, which was a great yin and yang in the kitchen. It, mm. it was awesome. Um, right now, I have uh, three women that work for me, and probably seven men. Mm. So right now, it's a little. Do you think women have, give a different style in the kitchen? Energy. I don't mean, you know, uh, cooking style. Is there a oh, absolutely. energy? How, how do you describe that? More detailed. Really? It was like you, they can see the detail and the whole picture as opposed to just, you know, guys' are, minds are da 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 that fast. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's all about the detail. And they say a little bit more calm. To be honest, I mean, most of the That's what I've heard, you know, is that there's uh, just not as much testosterone mm-hmm. drip, dripping off the walls. It's, as it's, they say. it's not as competitive. Yeah. It, or, and yeah, that, you know, that opportunity I told you about with, you know, it was half women, half men. It was like one of the most cohesive teams I'd ever worked with. You know, it was that balance of testosterone and detail and calmness. And so, yeah, absolutely. I can definitely tell a difference when there's a. When there's not as many women in my kitchen, you know, mm-hmm. the testosterone gets higher, the competitiveness gets higher, the mm, that all boisterousness. Right. <laughs> Do you think there's a difference in menu? Do you think that you can you can tell the gender of a chef by looking at a menu? Hmm. I've never thought about it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think people have remarked to me about that. Oh, what have they said? Well, I, can't, I tend to go for fresh and bright and light um, flavors, you know, and I don't, I get bored with, you know, two bites of something if it's not changing or if it's just too much of something. Um, so I like food that has complexity to it, but subtle, you know, so mm-hmm. as you're eating, you're, you're going, wow, that wasn't in that first bite, mm-hmm. you know, now it's changing into something else, you just really get into it, 
where sometimes, you know, uh, guys' food will just comes right off the bat. Boom. You know, it hits you. And that's all you get, though. <laughs> no, yeah. Like that. So, the, depending, where, depending where you are. So, tell me more about your food. When you compose a menu, what are, you know, what are you... What are some of the basic um, rules you have about putting together a menu? Is it is, do you change your menu seasonally? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. So, what's the first thing? How do you compose? Well, um, I don't know if you've seen my menu. My menu is kind of like four mini menus. So, you know how a lot of restaurants is just one style of food. We have the opportunity to. We have a southern side. Um, we have a cosmopolitan side, which is like global flavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a lush side, which is kind of my French background and growing. Um, and then just pure and simple. Um, so we get to play with a lot of products, and which is exciting because I think a lot of times chefs can get stuck in a rut by cooking the same style of food over and over. Mm-hmm. It all begins to taste the same. Mm-hmm. You know, um, with the cosmopolitan aspect, of the menu, it keeps you growing, it keeps you challenged, it keeps you experimenting um, and looking for different flavors. And I really have to say, I mean, I've had so much fun with that side of the menu, and then you'll find it, you know, kind of incorporating itself throughout the menu. Mm-hmm. But, you know, discovering, you know, a new spice like asafoetida, you know, from India. <laughs> Here we go again. I mean, <laughs> it's a spice in Indian culture. And it's Indian as in India. Yes. Okay. And the nickname is called Devil's Dung. Ooh. <laughs> so I was like, How oh. appetizing. Right. So what I started, does it taste like? Well, you smell it, you really don't want to taste it. But I was like, <laughs> okay, we, that's apparently how it comes about with the, the nickname. Um, and the, the, you add it to, like, you got potatoes in this oil, and you add it last minute, and all of a sudden it becomes really fragrant. And... Uh, and the taste is amazing. I mean, you just have to try it. I can't even explain it. How did you discover it? it? I was researching some Indian cuisine. Um, we were doing a dinner for Darkness to Light. It was a charity at the thing. The whole thing was Indian. I said, well, I'm going to do an Indian dish then for this. So I started researching and trying to find spices was almost nearly impossible at that point. Um, and came across, kept seeing this word. I was like, started researching, what is asafoetida? And then we have this great uh, little Indian grocery store that opened up. Her name is Nellie. It's like, Nellie, what is... Also Petita. Uh, Sounds like something <laughs> Santana would play on the guitar, you know. And then uh, I brought it back and finally got some. I had to mail order it and get it in. She didn't even have it. And uh, so we got it in. And we were at the event, getting ready to cook with it. I was like, the first time. We didn't have time to, you know, just came that day. We didn't even have time to practice oh with God. it. It's like, here we go. So at the, <laughs> the event, we're there. And my line cook that I had with me, his name was Jamie. He's like, he was like, Mama. He goes, you're going to have to do this. I'm afraid of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, everybody was looking at me like, uh-oh, this is going to be really good or really bad. Thank God it was really good. <laughs> so, so we went with it. Um what are some of the favorite your favorite dishes you're cooking right now? Uh, let's see. One of my favorite right now would be uh, we're doing a Thai fish dish. Oh. And um, we're what using. What makes it Thai? I'm doing. Uh, I call it Tom Yum Goon, which is a shrimp and lemongrass soup. But I'm using that as a broth, mm-hmm. and then to that I'm adding um, a little, our fresh local cherry tomatoes, a little 
diced up hericovera, grilled pineapple, Thai basil. Grilled uh, pineapple in the broth? Mm. Ooh, that must give it a smoky. Yeah. And it has, it, you know, the broth itself is cooked with like dried shrimp and lemongrass and ginger and garlic and shrimp stock and chilies. And mm. so it's got a balance of sweet and spicy mm. but still savory with that fish mm-hmm. make a little scallion uh, what kind of fish do you use whatever's uh, usually a snapper that's local mm-hmm. uh, whatever's coming in fresh that day with mm-hmm. the skin on get the skin nice and crispy so um, so you put that in the broth we put the we sear off the fish get the skin nice and crispy and then we mm-hmm. put the broth pour the broth around it mm-hmm. and then we make our own shrimp chips too had some fun oh that's, yeah. that's good. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. You'll have to come well, back and try. I know. So what kind of rice do you serve? Do you serve rice? No rice. rice? No, no rice. rice. Okay, Mm-mm. so it's just the broth. Is right. We're doing a, a little side dish of uh, on our Cosmopolitan side, too, of uh, lobster fried rice. One of my sous chefs made it for a little bar amuse one day, and I was like, we're putting this on the menu. <laughs> he was like, great. Wow. <laughs> lobster. That sounds mm, great. really good. Lobster. Do, and would, do you use Carolina? Or do you use... Uh, you know, Christian rice or for this one, I'm using a basmati, but basmati. Uh, we use a that lot. Almost sounds treacherous in Charleston, <laughs> right? Not, not using we just it. needed that a little, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But yes, we've got some great rice that we use a lot. So, as a Yankee, I need some more education. Here. All right, all right. So, what is low country? I mean, you know, we I we keep talking about it. I kind of think. Well, I guess it's not very high. I guess it's sea level. I don't know. Is that what Low Country and how big is Low Country? Is it just Charleston? It's it's the coastline, the eastern coastline of Georgia and South Carolina. Okay, right not North right, No, 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 no. You don't go past uh, like Georgetown, and you don't go past Savannah. I think is the mm-hmm. the borders. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it is Low Country because it is below sea level. Oh, it's below sea level. We are below sea level here. And so the slightest little sprinkle can cause flooding here really easily. Um, so it doesn't take much, especially if the tides are coming in. Uh-huh. So, so I guess that gives you a whole you know, set of different kinds of... Uh, you know, it's mostly food. seafood, you know, because we have a bounty right outside of our doors here. You know, mm-hmm. crabs and clams and shrimp and great local fish. That's definitely low country mixed with our, you know, rice, especially, mm-hmm. or grits, either mm-hmm. one. Uh, so those are the main components of what could be considered low country. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard of she crab soup or mm-hmm. frogmore stew. So what were the cultural influences of that? Do you know? You know, well, you know, Charleston was a port city. You know, that's um, a lot of influx from you know everyone from. Um, the plantations from Barbados to um, bringing the slaves in, you know, mm-hmm. the okra came in with that. Mm-hmm. You have the French Huguenots. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a real mix of mosh posh here. Yeah. And so all those little influences um, influenced the cuisine, obviously, and as right. it grew and changed. So, um, uh, what do you think of peanuts and the boiled peanuts? I love them. Are you kidding me? They're awesome. Uh, they are awesome. Are they only, are they only uh, here? In, oh, no, 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 no. I grew up in Alabama. We you know, oh, peanut uh, farms there as well, yeah. And do you boil them? Oh, absolutely. We make hummus out of them. A boiled peanut hummus. We really? We do all kinds of stuff with them. Yeah, absolutely. So, why don't you think this caught on in other areas of the country? 
I'm not sure, but uh, I don't know. We'll we'll keep it down here. I went on that. <laughs> I like it. I actually I was driving from here to Savannah, and there was a little gas station. And oh, I you can get them anywhere, yeah. And, you know, I thought it was hot soup, and I picked up this thing, and I see these peanuts. Never had them yeah. before, and I put them, and I was I was just addicted, you know. And can't stop eating them. No, you yeah. can't stop eating them. And they're very nutritious, right? Absolutely. I think that... They're legumes. I mean, peanuts yeah. are really legumes. Legumes, yeah. yeah. So, um, let's talk a little bit about sustainability. And, you know... Are there are there threats down here due to development or pollution? It doesn't strike me. It strikes me as this is pretty pretty well preserved down here. Uh, we, I mean, everyone here takes sustainability very seriously. You know, um, we want to have fish all the time, mm-hmm. but you know, we have when that fish is numbers are done. Yeah. You know, they keep track of it out there. Those guys are only mm-hmm. have a certain amount of this. After those tags are gone, they're done, mm-hmm. which, you know, I hate it for the fishermen, but it makes us start looking outside of the box. You know, fish that, you know, used to be considered throwbacks mm-hmm. are now on menus here. You really? Know. Like what? Um, anything from, uh, you know, octopuses making a come back here. It'll, we can get some local octopus. You know, people, Really? Fish, they didn't oh. used to keep it, but uh-huh. now they're keeping it because, yeah. you know, we're wanting it now. Right. Um, um, different things like that, you know, so... Somebody was telling me that, you know, when they fish with nets, almost 75% of the fish... Goes back. Go, well, and sometimes they dead. don't go yeah. back, and they just die. And it's because there are hundreds of types of fish, but we maybe only eat 20. Mm-hmm. And so they're not... I, I mean, it seems... People are funny. I mean, if, if they don't recognize the name, they're kind of hesitant about, well, I don't know, I don't know anything about this fish, you know. Mm-hmm. Do I really want to eat it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's the shad is running. Shad row, right? yeah. Shad row. And I had some smoked shad last mm-hmm. night. Fillet, you know. So Delicious. That, that was really that was really great. Um, do you keep a garden? I know you don't have a dog. Well, I'm not going to go there and ask how to. I wouldn't call all it a is. garden. <laughs> you have a garden with, at but the, you know, I try to keep herbs growing. I, you know, I get so frustrated with the darn tomatoes my mom has always had the best tomatoes and I always try to you know compare my tomatoes to hers and it just what kind of tomatoes does she grow you know I ask her this and you know she'll tell me the variety or whatever and it doesn't matter I'll go get the same variety try to do exactly what she tells me and they I don't know what it is they still don't taste as good as hers um but what's fun that well it could be and what's so fun for me though is as you know I was coming a chef and coming up and discovering all these great new flavors and stuff and um Turned her own to grow in herbs. Like, you know, she never grew basil before. Now she grows, like, three different kinds of basil. Mm. And then she's got it coming out of her ear. She was like, what am I going to do with all this basil? You know, mm. make some pesto. Yeah, really? <laughs> What's pesto? Teacher, right. So, well, if you give me the vegetable <laughs> soup recipe, uh-huh. I'll give you my pesto recipe. So now, you know, she's growing herbs. My dad's growing herbs. And he's got his little vegetable garden going, mm. you know, from mm. his patio. Or, mm. um, you know, i got friends that, you know, we just put in some boxes in his yard and just recently put in some lettuces and some mustard greens, you know. And I thought, that's about all the gardening I'm going to do. And, you know, at least over there I know somebody else is helping me take care so of you, it. Do you have, do you, have a, a, you know, some dreams still out there that you want to realize, let's say, in the next five years? Mm. I said, okay, magic wand time, you just won the lottery, $10 million, 
you could do anything you want. We're going to give you a sabbatical from the from the restaurant. <coughs> what would you do with that? On the dream side of things, I'd have a little restaurant and a uh, a farm that I could just go out there daily and just pick out what was fresh, what was coming from the garden, and cook it that night for whoever was coming in. No menu. This is what the menu is. Whatever I pulled in from the garden that day. Do you? What's the ideal size of the restaurant? Uh-huh. Like that in your in your dream? Probably 30, 40 seats, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, a little countertop there, family style tables. Mm-hmm. Everybody enjoying meeting new people that are sitting beside, passing plates around. Mm-hmm. What do you be drinking? What's your cocktail? Oh, a good glass of bubbles is always nice. <laughs> I, I do too. Oh, but you gotta have a little bourbon back there too, because I'm a good southern woman. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, you know, um, what's the, what's the ultimate way? I'm a woman too. Is there a woman's way to drink bourbon? <coughs> Proper bourbon would be straight. Straight, maybe one ice cube. That's about it. Okay, I think I've. Mr. Van Winkle, is it? Julian. Julian Van Winkle. I met him last night. Uh, I'm supposed to uh, try to find a Manhattan with him. You know, the two cultures, let them mix. Miss Manhattan. Miss truly, Manhattan. have you had his bourbon yet? No, I oh, haven't. What a treat. It really is. What a treat. I guess there's a lot of these artisanal um, uh, distilleries. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.